All right. Well, my name is Matthew Burkholder. I'm in charge of uh, the student ministries um, here at Crosspoint, and just uh, so glad to be here and have the opportunity and privilege um, to be opening up God's word this morning. God's worked radically in my life, and I used to be in your seat for so long, and so it's so wild to be up here. I've grown up in this church, and so it's funny. I'm so used to sitting in the seat that you're sitting now, and it's so weird to be up here. Um, God radically got a hold of my heart. I was a, a senior at GCU, Grand Canyon University, so lopes up. Uh, anybody in Phoenix, Arizona? Um, totally GCU pride. I was a senior, and God just got a hold of my heart. I had no intention of student ministries, um, but God just laid that on my heart, and here I am a year later, and just uh, super glad um, to be serving uh, with junior high and high school students. Um, I love it. Um, when it comes to Hume Lake, this is Hume Weekend, and we're celebrating just what God did. And God did amazing stuff in the lives of students up at Hume Lake. We saw 11 students come to know Christ, and uh, five students, yeah. And uh, five students rededicate their lives to the Lord. And so just super cool to see. And I just, uh, I saw so many students come up to me and just express, like, hey, I want to take my faith seriously. I want to take my relationship with God seriously. When I come back down the hill, I don't want it just to be a feeling or something that just lasts for a week, but I want this to last for a lifetime. So we have a video to kind of recap and show you some of the fun things we did and uh, up at Hume Lake. All right. Yeah. So there's a little snapshot at uh, what went on at Hume Lake. I have a little funny story I guess I could share with you guys. It was uh, Wednesday night. And I was basically like on the verge of getting sick. I had a sore throat, and if you kind of know like your symptoms, you kind of like can tell, okay, I'm going to get sick here. And so I was pumping myself with emergency, and of course, 1130 at night, I have the lights off, about to go to bed, and all of a sudden, the lights turn back on, and the guys think it's a good idea, hey, we're going to do this mega bunk thing. And so basically what they did was they brought three beds together, and like basically 10, 12 guys just piled in. And so what I did was I basically, I'm like, since I know I'm getting sick, I just grabbed my comforter, grabbed my pillow, and went into the other room and found some other buddies, someone else's bed, and just sacked out on there, and it was awesome. So, and hey, and I didn't get sick on Thursday or Friday, so I made it through the week because I knew I was going to be out of commission if I got sick. But uh, yeah, just awesome times at Hume Lake, and it's just so excited to see uh, what God's done just in the lives of so many students. Um, speaking of Hume Lake, we looked at this theme of the life of King Saul. And unlike a lot, of, a lot of years at Hume Lake, you're looking at this guy who's basically the example of what not to do. So often you look at inspirational characters in, in the Bible, uh, characters like Isaiah, Elijah, King David, Moses, Abraham, guys who get it right. Guys who are an example of really ultimately what to do. And yet Saul is that example of just what not to do, and yet it was just such a challenge when it came to um, challenging these students' lives with, with really kind of this life of King Saul. And so I want to take a minute to kind of compare the lives of King Saul and King David to kind of give you a glimpse and a snapshot into the lessons that we learned. And King David was a man after God's own heart, and he pleased God. That's what he strived after. Ultimately, he was about obeying God. He had his mess up, sure. But when it came down to it, the majority of his life, he was striving to please God, where King, king Saul was basically this, the, the people's chosen king. And he spent his whole life basically trying to please people rather than please God. And when it came down to it, King David, when he did make mistakes, which he made a big mistake, right, in committing adultery with Bathsheba and then committing murder to cover that up, when he made that big mistake, he led 
ultimately with a, with a heart of repentance. He turned to God because of the sin he's done in his own life. He acknowledged that failure and he went to God for forgiveness. Where King Saul lived basically the majority of his life belittling his sin, basically saying it's not that big of a deal and then also blame shifting and saying it's not my fault. And he lived the majority of his life in an unrepentant heart. And we consider ultimately David's life this triumph. And not a triumph because everything was easy for him and everything went perfect, but ultimately that he came to serve, he basically served God. He pleased God with his whole life. And he lived by this motto here. Now I'm not a math whiz, but that's a greater than sign. You may have seen uh, bumper stickers like this. There's a company that he is greater than I. John 3.30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Basically, I'm going to make much of God in my life, and I'm going to become less. And if we really think about it, it's almost like this teeter-totter of a relationship, where it's like, if I'm making much of God, well, I'm going to make less of myself. But if I'm making more of myself, it's going to be less of God. He must increase, I must decrease. And that's why David's life was ultimately a triumph, because he lived by he is greater than I. Where here, you have the life of King Saul, and he lived by this equation. That he is equal to I or he is less than I is what it comes down to it. David ultimately realized that though in physical form, right, humanly speaking, he was on the throne of Israel as king. He ultimately realized who was actually on the throne and that was God. Where King Saul struggled his whole life, basically struggling with this idea of this, this, this battle for control. And ultimately he saw himself equal with God. And then eventually it came to a point where he saw himself even greater than God. And that was ultimately his downfall and why Saul is considered a tragedy and David a triumph. So turn with me to Luke uh, 7:36 through 50 because I believe this is just a New Testament perfect example of this very same lesson of what we've learned uh, in the life of King Saul. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to give you a little background on, uh, on Luke 7 so we kind of know going into it um, what we're reading. Basically, Jesus has been invited over to a Pharisee's house. And that Pharisee's house, his name's Simon. So like you guys may be going out to lunch after service and you may invite someone to come along. That's basically what happens here. Jesus, at a, after a day of ministry, is getting invited over to Simon's house for dinner. And while they're having dinner, all of a sudden this woman comes in. And she's going to barge into the scene and totally interrupt their conversation, interrupt dinner and what's going on. And I want you to notice the two distinct different responses by the woman and by Simon, because that's what we'll be talking about. So let's go ahead and read and get into it in Luke 7, 36 through 50. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. That's Simon. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so Jesus is going to teach Simon a lesson. And he answered and said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love them more? 
Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, well, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so what's going on here is there's two complete, distinct, different responses towards Jesus. One by Simon, one by the woman. And Simon has invited Jesus as a guest of honor over to his house. And there's a certain way in which you go about treating a guest. Just like in the 21st century nowadays. When you invite someone over to your house, there's a certain way, certain etiquette you go about to respect them. And for the first century, washing feet, anointing with oil, and greeting with a kiss were those three common things that you would do when you invited a guest over to your house. That was the proper etiquette. And Simon here is, is the host, and he's basically being a lousy host, and this woman who all of a sudden just comes in out of nowhere is doing all the things really that Simon should be doing. So think about it for a moment. Like relate it to the, let's, let's bring first century Israel into 21st century America. Because the principle's the same when it comes to inviting a guest over and, and honoring them or respecting them, right? There's that, the principle's the same, but the methods are different. So what do we do in the 21st century? If we invite a guest over, what are we gonna do? And you can dialogue here, you can shout out to me. What are we doing? Clean the house, clean the house. I wrote that one down too, yep. What else? Feed them, yeah, prepare a meal, feed them. Ask them, give them something to drink. When it comes to a greeting, it's usually not with a kiss, right, in other cultures, but in, in American society nowadays, it's, you know, high five, handshake, or even hug, even though I'm not much of a hugger, but I'll do the handshake, right, or high five. And I think the biggest thing when it comes to the 21st century, if you really want to respect your guest, is you're going to hand out your Wi-Fi password to them. Right? I, I've seen this t-shirt where it says, home is where your Wi-Fi connects. You know? like you're really, like, they're a guest of honor at your house if you're willing to give up your password to them and allow them to connect to the internet at your house. Right? The point of it is, is that there's two complete different responses. And ultimately, Simon is, is basically being this lousy host, and yet this woman is picking up the slack for her. So why? Why the difference in response? What does the woman understand that Simon doesn't? And the key to this response is that she understands her need for Jesus. And that's the big idea, is that ultimately your love for Jesus is directly connected to your need for him. Your love for Jesus is directly connected to your need for him. And it logically follows. If I need Christ, well, my, that my response is gonna be so much great. I mean, you th look at this, the, the woman, Simon, uh, the woman and Simon. The woman has this radical response 
because of her need for Christ. She realizes her need for Jesus. She realizes the sin in her own life and that Jesus is the one person in the room that can save her. And this literally brings her to her knees where she has just this complete abandonment of just, and just this response of worship. And it all goes back to need. So what's your response when it comes to Jesus? Because I think for many of us, it's just not as radical as this woman. You know, we may go to church on Sundays, but what are we doing the rest of the week? It's so easy for us to give God part of our lives, but this idea of giving God our whole lives, that's, that's a big deal. Do we allow God just to serve our agenda and what we want, or do we want to serve his? Do we just give God ultimately our, kind of the, our leftovers, like, okay, you know, I'll pray during me, before meals, and I'll, you know, give, maybe give him five minutes before I go to bed? Imagine a relationship, a strong relationship with a friend and communicating with them five minutes a day or even 30 minutes a week. You think that's going to be a strong relationship? No. God wants so much more. God is ultimately after our love. He's ultimately after a radical response within us towards him. He wants our full commitment. He wants all of us. And we have to get back to recognizing our need for him. And when you first come to Christ, that's the first thing, is realizing your need. And even, I think, even as Christians, we need to constantly remind ourselves of our need and our dependence for Christ on a day-to-day basis. I think a perfect example of this is, you know, if you've ever been to Disneyland, you, you spend the whole day there because you pay like $150 to go there, so you make the investment, so you're like, oh, I gotta, I gotta spend the whole day there, right? That's just usually how it goes. And about by like three o'clock in the afternoon, you didn't bring a water with you and that was a mistake and you are now just dying of thirst, right? And then you go to a stand and you go and okay, I'm gonna gonna get a thing of water and you realize that it's $8, right? (laughs) You realize that the water bottle's eight bucks and you have to decide in that moment, right? Does my need, is my need, like my, my thirst here, like is it worth eight bucks? You know, because that's like, that's a, that's a hefty price. You know, I could get eight bucks, will get me a 40-pack at Costco, you know. <laughs> and so you got to consider. And the whole point is, is what? You end up spending that $8. Right? You end up actually, you know, indulging and, okay, I'll give it up. I'll, I'll pay the eight bucks because I'm thirsty. And you recognize your need, and that drives you to respond, and that's a radical response. That's that idea is that you recognize your need for Jesus in your life. And that causes you to radically respond. And so your love for Jesus is directly connected to your need for him. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves, or in the first question really the woman gets right, is who do you say you are? If you're making it personal, who do I say that I am? This is the first question that the woman gets right. In verse 37, she's, she's labeled as, it says, the woman of the city, the only thing we know about her is that she's a sinner. And uh, later on, Jesus says that your sins are many and they're forgiven. That's what we get. We know that she ultimately is the sinner, and you see that in her response. And the woman understands her sin. And the question is, do you understand the reality that ultimately you're a sinner in need of saving? That's our need for Christ. 
when it comes down to it. We are a sinner in need of saving. Do you realize how desperate of a situation that puts us in? That we chose, ultimately we were created and designed to glorify God and we chose to glorify ourselves, go our own way. God, I know what's best, I'm gonna do my own thing. And we, so, we chose to go our separate way, do what we want rather than what God wants. And it's not like we're a victim of this disease of sinfulness. No, we chose to indulge in sinfulness and therefore we are sinners. And our, sinner, and our sin really kind of puts us in a corner. It's really, it's a big deal. It's our fault. And there's ultimately nothing we on our own, ourselves, can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it. It says in Ephesians 2 that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're lifeless. You're motionless. We cannot save ourselves. That's the reality. Do you recognize and do you realize that? Because a lot of the times I think we tend to try to avoid that. And we do it by two different things here. We pretend to be Lord first and foremost. Saying I'm in control and I know what's best and I'm gonna do my own thing and so we don't see our need for Christ. I'm gonna go my own separate way. So many of us live this way when it comes to our family, our friends, our job, finances. Hey, I'm in control, I know what's best, I've got this thing. I'm gonna be Lord of my own life. And it's always dodging this reality that ultimately we are sinners in need of saving. The perfect example of this is the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son basically summed up like this. The son basically goes to his father and basically says, hey, I want my inheritance, which in that culture was basically, I, I wish you were dead. And so he basically takes his money that his father gives him, his inheritance, and he basically goes and lives it up. Everything the world has to offer, he goes for it. Sleeping around, money, getting all the stuff he can afford, and he ultimately becomes broke. And then it leads him basically to this point, this total point of brokenness where he's basically in a pigsty, living with pigs and eating out of a pig trough. And the turning point in that story is that ultimately he realizes that he's a sinner in need of saving. He recognizes his need for his father and he runs back home and his father opens, uh, opens up his house with open arms and welcomes his son back. The turning point is that he recognizes and realizes his need for a Lord in his life. That makes all the difference, right? He tries to dodge that reality for the good portion of his life and then it comes, that reality comes back around to him. And so we try to pretend to be Lord and be in control and we think we know what's best. And the other thing we try to do is we try to be savior of our own lives. Saying I'm good enough and I can save myself. And I know this personally because this is a big thing that I dealt with in my own life. I grew up in church. I did the Sunday school thing. I read my Bible. I did all these different things and I thought I was good enough. But what I came to realize was I was living, like I, I wasn't living in need of God. I didn't need Jesus as my savior. Because I thought ultimately I could be good enough. By just following the rules, by being a good kid, I had it all, all together. I had it all down when that wasn't the reality. Because I was trying to ultimately pretend to be savior of my own life and I was basically dodging the reality that I'm a sinner in need of saving. A great example of this is 
kind of a funny example is I've, I've been on many first, like several first dates in my life, okay? And so, so with that being said, I, I kind of have like a pre, pre-date routine, so I just like, I've nailed it down. So, um, and one of those things I do is I do, I do 100 push-ups before, uh, <laughs> before I go on the date, so <laughs> five sets of 20, so yeah. <laughs> so you may be wondering, like, why? What? And basically, I do this because I was like, I want to appear physically strong when I go on this first date, you know? I want to appear muscular, jacked, and so I would do 100 push-ups. And I don't, I mean, I, I'm totally crazy. I did this in college, by the way, too, so it's not that long ago. Um, <laughs> um, but the point is, is the reality of it is, no matter how many push-ups I do, no matter the amount, like, I'm still not going to actually be strong enough. Like, I, I'm not going to give off that, like, impression. It's just not going to happen. Like, I'm not physically that strong. That's just the way it works. And the point of it is here is, I think we do that. Where there's no amount of good, there's no amount of rule following we can do to save ourselves. Can't do it. We can pretend, we can lie to ourselves and think we can be savior, think we can be good enough and we can save ourselves, but the reality of it is, is that we can't. And so the bottom line, when it comes down to it, is we try to play Lord and Savior of our lives when the reality of it is we are sinners in need of a Lord and Savior. That's what it comes down to it. The second question that the woman gets right is the question of who do you say Jesus is? You know, Simon. Simon calls Jesus in verse 40, teacher. In verse 39, he acknowledges him as a prophet. He never calls him Lord. He never calls him Savior. He never calls him God. Simon Simon misunderstood and had the wrong answer to this question of who do you say Jesus is, where the woman got it. She realized the one person in the room that could save her sins. And it wasn't even her house, and so what did she do? She barged in there, and she fell at the feet of Jesus. And that's why you see this radical response. Read with me Acts 2, through 24. You could look it up on the screen. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus... Here's the gospel. Delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, though, on the third day, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The reality of it is, is that Jesus came out of love for us to accomplish our salvation. We're sinners in need of rescue. We're sinners in need of a Savior. But Jesus is that Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord. He's in control. He knows what's best. In Colossians, it talks about how everything is made through him and for him. He's in control of all things. It says that he did mighty works. He showed himself and proved himself to be God. And the greatest work, the greatest miracle of all is that he came to die on the cross for you, to take on your sins, to take on the punishment you and I deserved. 
That's what Jesus did. He gives us hope. He gives us life. He rescues us. And so he's not only Lord, but he's also Savior. That he's perfect, and he alone can save us. And really what it comes down to is who, do you, who you say Jesus is. I mean, the answer to this question is likely the most important thing about you. A theologian was, uh, said that once. The most important thing about you is your answer to this question of who do you say Jesus is because it drastically changes how you live. There was this shirt um, when I was uh, in junior high. It says, Jesus is my homeboy, right? And maybe you've seen the sticker of, like, Jesus is my co-pilot, Right? Jesus is so much more than your co-pilot and your homeboy. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of your life. That's the awesomeness of the gospel. And when we realize that, we realize our need for saving. When we realize that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord and Savior, well, we're going to want to live for him. Our response is going to ultimately be love. And the bottom line is, our life is not our own. He's king. We're not. He knows what's best. We don't. He alone can save us. We can't save ourselves. And so going back to David and the life in, in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He is greater than I. You realize that ultimately your life is not your own. And you think about every time that Jesus calls people to follow him. He says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. The biggest obstacle to you following God, the biggest obstacle to you believing in him and trusting him with your whole life is you. That's why he always says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. He's got to become great in our lives, and we've got to become less. That's what it's about. And so action steps, what do, we, what, what, do, what, what do we need to do here? The first thing is we need to repent and recognize our need for Jesus. That literally is what repentance is. It's basically saying, I've messed up and I'm gonna acknowledge my sin for what it is. I'm in need of a savior and I'm gonna turn from that and I'm gonna turn towards God. Maybe you need to do that for the first time. You're, you're seeing your need for the first time in your life. Maybe you're a Christian and maybe you need to get back to that heart of repentance. Like when was the last time you honestly went before God and acknowledged your sin before him? We just don't do it enough. And when we do that, when we live a life of repentance, we're gonna start to see, oh my gosh, I'm actually in need and I'm gonna, I'm gonna depend on God my whole life because I'm in need of a Lord and Savior and I cannot go on living without him. Because that's the reality. We need to repent, turn away from sin, and turn towards God. And the second thing is rely. Love God with your whole life. In 1 Samuel 12, 24, the theme verse for Hume Lake, it said this year, it says, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with your whole heart, for consider the great things God has done for you. Consider the great things God has done for you in your life. What God's done, and the fact that we chose sin, we chose to separate ourselves from God, and yet God said, no, I want to love you. I want you to know me. And so what did he do? He pursued and chased after us and literally gave up his one and only son for us, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. That's what God has done. And we consider that in the reality, in the light of our sin, we should rely upon him. 
Love God with your whole life. Serve him faithfully with your whole heart. That's what God wants. And for believers, I, I think so often we, we do this thing where we live in this wrestling match with God where it's this constant battle for control. And we're like, oh my gosh, like, okay, I need you here, God. Something tragic has happened in my life, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to depend upon you here. And then something good happens, right? Get a job promotion, you know, bonus, and you're like, okay, I'm going to take control now. And it's like this back and forth. And we live our whole lives in this wrestling match with God. And we may have instances, we may have moments, right, maybe even seasons in our life where God's just using us, working, and we just have this passion for him. But God doesn't want instances or just seasons in our life. He wants our whole life. And so I think of the Christian life as really something that's almost more like a dance, where someone takes the lead and someone follows, where God's leading and you follow. And it's awkward at first, that first dance is going to be awkward. You're going to step on his toes. You're going to, you're going to fight and battle it a bit for control. But eventually, you're going to get in sync. Eventually, it's going to be fluid. And you're going to get out of this cycle. You're going to live, start living in this cycle of obedience and victory towards God. That's what he wants. And you're going to serve him faithfully with your whole life. That's what God's after. And that ultimately comes down to this idea of reliance. We've got to rely and depend upon God every moment of every day in the ordinary things. You know, simple things like devotional life with God, Bible reading and prayer. Man, you're depending upon God because you're saying, God, I need you. I'm going to open this thing up. I need you here. Prayer talking to God. Hey, I need you here in this moment in my life. I, I, I'm dealing with this. Help me. It's a personal relationship with God, and so you depend upon him. You hear from him in his word, and you talk to him in prayer. It's conversation, two-way communication. That's how you grow. Depending upon God and just the ordinary things in your life, giving more and more of it over to him, your job, your relationships in your life, how you spend your time, all these different things, relying upon God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, says this, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That ultimately you realize what Jesus has done for you and you don't live for yourself anymore. You realize your life is not your own and you choose to live for him. And the reality of it is you realize your need for Jesus, your response will be moved from, hey, let's not, or not right now, I'm going to put God off, hit the snooze button on God instead being, hey, let's go. To make much of God in my life and make less of me. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to recognize in reality of, that we're in need of you. That ultimately we're sinners in need of saving. But the beauty is and, and the good news of the gospel is that you didn't leave us there. That you chose to want us and love us. And so you sent your son as a sacrifice to be Lord and Savior of our lives. And Lord, so I just pray now that we would turn to you. 
and repent, recognize our need. Maybe some people here need to recognize their need for the first time. Maybe some people need to recognize their need for the thousandth time. Help us to repent, to turn away from sin and turn towards you and to live lives relying upon you in the day-to-day, in the ordinary, Lord, to serve you faithfully with our whole hearts. That's what we're after. May we make much of you and less of us. You are greater, Lord. May that be the prayer, which is life we live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.